Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick-Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. I'm a certified sex therapist with 25 years of clinical experience. I have a private practice in Hollywood, California, and I'm also an assistant professor of psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine, where I teach young docs how to speak comfortably and confidently about sexual material with patients. I'm so excited to just dive right in and start talking about sex, which no surprise is my favorite subject. But I wanted to let you know that we have a wonderful and distinguished guest joining me today later in this episode. So you're definitely going to want to stay tuned for that. We'll be discussing innovations in sexual medicine and some pretty cool stuff happening. You're not going to want to miss that. One of the first questions I get when someone hears that I'm a sex therapist is, how did you get into that? What what drew you into that profession? And I thought I would share with you that I have had a lifelong sort of burning interest in the role of sexuality in our culture and the power of sex in our society and all the mixed messages and competing signals that we have to decode and decipher at many different stages of development and how these mixed signals can cause confusion and shame that have quite a legacy. And I was just fascinated by the taboo nature of sex in our society on the one hand, when on the other hand, sex sells and our media and our billboards and our TV and movies are loaded with sexual innuendo. So I thought maybe if I immerse myself in the study of sexual health and sexual medicine and psychology, I might be able to figure some of this out and see if I can crack the code, so to speak, and gain an appreciation of all these competing signals and the psychosocial bio issues that are affecting our sexual health and development and function and satisfaction. Another question I get all the time is, don't you get bored talking about sex day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade? And the answer is absolutely not. I think people who've known me for a long time will say that I'm more passionate about my work now than I was even 25 years ago. And I went into this business pretty darn passionate. I just become more and more fascinated each year when I talk with people about their sexual stories, and uh, it certainly hasn't lost its luster for me. So why did I decide to create this podcast? Well, I think it's because I've witnessed firsthand the damage that these negative messages and competing signals can cause for someone's self-esteem, their overall well-being, and their sexual health and satisfaction. I also have seen that education and validation and providing a safe and non-judgmental 
environment to talk about someone's sexual life can release people from shame and liberate them and be life-changing. I've had the honor of preventing divorces. I've had the honor of helping people realize that life is worth living when they were feeling suicidal related to some aspect of their sexuality. And it is such a powerful, satisfying, gratifying experience to offer this to my patients. And I decided it was time to offer it to the world. Another reason I decided to launch this podcast is because after talking with probably 4,000 men and women about their sexual health, I have gained a lot of insight into the common and universal sexual struggles that people face. I also have insight into male and female sexual fantasies. What do people think about when they're masturbating? What turns men on? What turns women on? How does it overlap? How is it different? And I also have a lot of insight into, I think, what people expect entering into relationships and what they expect about how their sex life is going to unfold. But before we move on to that portion of the show, I just want to take a minute to share with you the format of this podcast so you'll know what to expect and what's coming each week. I'll be sharing lots of cutting-edge scientific research with you. I'll be uh, making sure to keep up with all the innovations in sexual medicine. In fact, I have a number of very exciting guests that I'll be bringing on to talk with you about a wide range of sexual health matters. I will each week be giving what I call a sex IQ quiz, so you can assess your own knowledge, your own biases, and monitor how sex savvy you are. I'll also be sharing some trivia and tips about a wide range of sexual health issues. I'll be answering your questions, your emails, your phone calls. This show is my gift to you. I'll continue to share some clinical trends in my clinical practice, themes that are popping up in my work. And I will also continue to share sexual stories that I hope will move you and inspire you. I want you to make peace with your own unique sexual story and achieve your optimal sexual health. And I hope that each episode of Sex Savvy will get you closer to that goal. So I'm sitting here in my office in North Hollywood and trying to think of the best way to convey the common problems that bring people into my office. And I thought it would be best to start with the phases of sexual response, desire, arousal, orgasm, and satisfaction. I'll be breaking each of these phases down much more over the next couple of episodes, but today I wanted to talk to you about sexual dysfunction and the common types of sexual complaints that people bring in regarding their functioning. And I want to start with desire. Desire is the most complex and fragile phase of sexual response. And the range of complaints that I hear about desire are that someone's desire is too low. So they have uh, what we call inhibited desire disorder. So they don't have access to any sexual energy in their body. They don't have lots of libido. They don't feel horny. And 
on the flip side of that, some people seek my help because their sex drive is too high. Perhaps they're sexually compulsive. Perhaps they're preoccupied with sexual thoughts and sexual energy throughout the day. Perhaps they're masturbating three, six, 10, 12 times a day. And another common area of concern that people seek my help for is a discrepancy in desire between two partners. So someone might have a very high sex drive and the other may have a low sex drive and it's causing conflict in the relationship. If we move on from desire to the arousal phase of sexual response, I like to think of this as sort of the plumbing phase of sexual response. And for men, it has to do with being able to achieve an erection, but also maintain an erection. Some men will say they have no problem getting hard, they just can't stay hard. Whereas other men will complain that they can't get hard at all. Nothing happens there. They're not even able to get started. In terms of women, when it comes to arousal, I hear a lack of vaginal lubrication, a lack of uh, sensation in their nipples, and a sort of either nothingness when they're stimulated or an uncomfortable or tickly sensation. For both men and women, arousal is a vascular process, which basically means that blood flow is rushing to the genitals and other erogenous zones. This is accompanied by an increase in blood pressure and uh, dilation of the pupils and a change in breathing and some other physiological responses. When it comes to orgasm, the complaints I hear from men is that they come too fast. That used to be called premature ejaculation. Now we refer to that as rapid ejaculation. Now some men come in and they say that they are so excited that they're ejaculating even before they enter their partner, for example, if they're having uh, intercourse in a heterosexual relationship. Other men say that they can hold off until they enter, but as soon as they enter or upon one or two thrusts, they blow their wad, so to speak, as many of my men uh, like to say. And other men come in because they can't finish. They're unable to have an orgasm and ejaculate. We used to call that retarded ejaculation. Now we call that delayed orgasm or inhibited orgasm in men. For women, the complaints I hear about orgasm are that they've never had an orgasm, or at least they don't think they have, that they can't achieve orgasm from coitus, from intercourse, but they can from oral or manual stimulation by a partner. Some women, and more importantly, often their partners, regardless of gender, but especially men, Uh, are highly invested in them having an orgasm from intercourse. And I have a lot of women coming to see me because their husbands or boyfriends are saying, I really want you to be able to get off from sex, what they consider sex, which is often intercourse. I also hear from women that they can only have an orgasm by themselves from masturbation, and they're not able to relax or allow anyone to bear witness to their arousal to the point of orgasm, and they can only do that by themselves. So those are the range of complaints I hear from women, either never had an orgasm, not sure if they've had an orgasm, can only have an orgasm from masturbation, or can only have an orgasm from manual or oral stimulation, and they want to be able to have an orgasm from intercourse. 
The final phase of sexual response is satisfaction. There's both an emotional and a physical component to this. So what I want for my patients is for them to have both a good orgasm where they feel physically satisfied, but also emotionally satisfied based on a connection to their partner and feeling bonded to their partner and not just the physical pleasure, but the emotional satisfaction as well. Sometimes people don't have an orgasm, but they feel very close and connected and they value the experience and are happy, even though they didn't have an orgasm. Other times people might have a great orgasm, but they don't feel close and connected to their partner. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes people don't have an orgasm and they feel not connected to their partner. So they're lacking both emotional and physical satisfaction. But in an ideal world, they would have both a good orgasm and feel positive about the encounter. Beyond the phases of sexual response, many people seek my help in terms of confusion around sexual identity. And the three core components of sexual identity are gender, orientation, and what we call intention. Gender is the most basic component of sexual identity and the first to develop. So by age two or three, toddlers can scan a room and point and say, you're a mommy, you're a daddy, you're a daddy, you're a mommy, you're a mommy, even if the daddies have long hair and the mommies have short hair. Kids have an innate sense of gender and they can pretty accurately identify who's a man and who's a woman. In terms of the issues that bring people into my office regarding gender, it may be that they have some lifelong gender dysphoria around their body or their genitals and they're exploring transition Perhaps they want to try hormones, perhaps they want to have surgery, perhaps they want to live as the gender that they feel more comfortable with or more connected to. When it comes to orientation, the range of issues that bring people in are typically that they're in a straight relationship, in a, in a heterosexual relationship, and they're engaging in homosexual contact in secret or what is referred to as on the down low. Some people come in and they're in a heterosexual relationship, but they're having erotic thoughts or fantasies about some homosexual contact and it's troubling them and they want to explore those feelings and understand where they're coming from. And others come in because they have some sort of religious or moral objection to their homoeroticism and they want to try to reconcile those competing feelings. When it comes to intention, we're talking about literally what are my intentions toward you sexually? What do I want to do to you and with you and why? What are the sexual themes that turn me on? What's the sexual script that I am sexually responsive to? And one of the core missions of my work has been to destigmatize or depathologize sexual differences. And by uh, sexual differences, I mean disorders of intention, where people may be sexually attracted to an object or a particular behavior or a theme that is considered by many to be perverted or deviant, yet is a longstanding, deeply ingrained interest for that particular person. I'm very proud to call myself a kink-friendly therapist, and uh, many people seek my help because they know that I am open to helping them understand and make friends with some alternative sexual interests that other therapists may either be uncomfortable working with or not know enough about to feel helpful. 
So some of these types of problems might include things like exhibitionism or voyeurism or BDSM. Treat a lot of men with fetishes ranging from the sort of cliche and common fetishes like a foot fetish or a shoe fetish or, you know, high heels to uh, rubber or latex or balloons. I have helped men with fetishes to enemas or other medical procedures. I've worked with men who can only have an orgasm if their partner is asleep or dead. Uh, There's something called necrophilia, which is an erotic interest to corpses. I've worked with men and women who are sexually responsive to urine or feces. I've treated a number of men who are what, what they call, they refer to themselves as adult babies, and they are comforted and erotically charged by wearing diapers or sucking on a pacifier or a baby bottle. So these are just a few examples of the many, many, many dozens of fetishes that I've helped people come to understand perhaps the origins of or how to disclose to their partners that they have this interest, how to work it into a more conventional relationship. Some people come to me because they want the fetishes to go away. Other people come to me because they just want information and education about their fetish. So a lot happening in my office around these sorts of unconventional erotic responses. I also work with people who engage in um, polyamory, which is a lifestyle where you have not just more than one sexual partner, but more than one love interest, and you actually have an emotional attachment to more than one person at the same time. I also work with people who are so-called swingers that have open marriages or open relationships, and their partner is aware of the fact that they're sleeping with other people and is often involved in orchestrating or setting up such encounters. Another big chunk of my practice is men who are sexually compulsive or who may refer to themselves as sex addicts who compulsively go to strip clubs or massage parlors for a so-called happy ending, or they are addicted to porn. Some of them are looking at porn for six, 12 hours a day to the point where they're unable to get to work on time or get enough sleep. Some of the men I treat are in trouble because they were looking at pornography at work on a work computer, and that is uh, not allowed at their place of employment. So there's a wide range, as you can see, of issues that bring people to my office. And there are many, many more that I could talk to you about, but these are the sort of common, most universal kinds of concerns and worries that bring people into my office. So now that you have a sense of of why people are coming to see me, I want to talk to you about really the most important thing that I do. And that is to just simply talk to people about sex. You'd be surprised how many people have never had a conversation about sex out loud as an adult. Now, as you're listening to this, you might think, well, I've had conversations about sex. Well, have you had a conversation an authentic conversation about your sexual history, your sexual fantasies, what turns you on, what feels good, what are your expectations about sex in a relationship. And if you can say yes to all of those things, then you get a gold star. And I want you to come on my show because you've managed to escape some of the traps that many Americans fall into around a healthy relationship with sex. 
not only is it difficult for many people to have conversations, at least initially with me when they enter my office, but they're very reticent to have a conversation with their sexual partner. And another big part of my work is just facilitating dialogue between couples who can disclose aspects of their sexual life that they have kept secret or not necessarily secret, but just have never felt comfortable enough to share. So the power of talking about sex with your partner in a safe environment with professional guidance, as I said early on, can truly be liberating and life-changing. And um, it's a big part of the magic that happens in this office. This is the part of the show where I'm really hoping I can hook you, where I can cement your interest in sex savvy, because I'm going to be talking about sexual stories and the impact of early sexual experiences and how they can shape and inform your relationship to sex for the rest of your life. When someone comes to see me, I always take a comprehensive sexual history. And one of the things I focus on is puberty. I ask Men, when was your first wet dream? How old were you when you started masturbating? Were you the first boy or the last boy in your class to start shaving? Because all of these things influence how you experience your sexuality. For women, I ask, how old were you when you got your period? Who did you tell? How old were you when you started wearing a bra? Were you an early bloomer, late bloomer, or average bloomer compared to your peers? Getting insight into their sexual development informs my ability to reframe and interpret sexual concerns that they have had and allow them to be more flexible and find wiggle room in terms of achieving the sexual life that they really want to have. In preparation for this podcast, I've been reflecting on my caseload and thinking back to the many thousands of people that I've talked to about their sexual lives and I thought it would be helpful to pull out a handful of stories that really capture the impact of early sexual trauma or a negative sexual experience that can leave an imprint or a stamp and shape someone's relationship with their sexuality for really the rest of their lives. I want to start by sharing a story of a man who came to see me in his mid-60s. He explained that he was the product of a rape and that his mother was also the product of a rape. And he said that when he was 14 years old, he went on a date with a girl who lived a couple of doors down, and they rode their bicycles to the movie theater and then watched a movie, went back to her house, and sat on the front porch with her parents drinking lemonade and eating pretzels. When he went home that night and entered the house, his mother hit him over the head with a frying pan. And she said to him, I know you raped that girl and I've already called the police. Well, as you can imagine, he was quite shocked and wasn't understanding what was happening. And his mother said, you're the product of a rape. I'm the product of a rape. It's only a matter of time before you rape. All men are rapists and you are going to be held accountable for the animal within you. I'm just going to let that hang out there for a minute. And I'm not going to tell you how that story got resolved or the impact that that had on my patient up through his mid-60s. I just want you to imagine what a conversation like that might do to a boy who's in puberty. Next, I want to share a story about a woman who came to see me in her late 30s and recalled 
her adolescence when she was age 14 and how she and her best friend Tina spent a summer hanging out with a group of boys and really wanted to be popular and how Tina liked a particular boy and the boy convinced her to allow him to so-called go down on her or perform cunnilingus on her. And the boy made a comment to Tina that she smelled, that she had a, a vaginal scent that was offensive to him. And then when school started up a few weeks later, all the boys at school called Tina, Tina, Tuna. And my patient and her friend were just humiliated and embarrassed and became preoccupied with cleanliness and grooming and douching and washing to the point where they developed an obsession and it interfered with their comfort and capacity to allow any sexual partner near their genitals in case he might smell an offensive odor. And she thinks back to that summer as sort of the the summer that her sexuality died because prior to that, she remembers being excited about kissing boys and making out. But the incident with the nickname of Tina Tuna really, really stopped her dead in her tracks and her sexual development went underground. The next story I'd like to share is about a man who came to see me in his mid-40s. He said he was coming in because his wife had discovered a third affair and that she felt like he needed to get some help. But when he actually got to my office, he admitted that he had had somewhere around seven or 800 extramarital contacts. And I was curious as to what factors from his childhood may have made him vulnerable to act out in this way. And he went on to describe about a year and a half of his life that started when he was 11 years old. And he heard some sounds coming from his mother's bedroom, knew his dad was at work. So he looked through the little keyhole under the doorknob, and he witnessed his mother engaged in sexual intercourse with a neighbor who happened to be his father's best friend. And instead of turning away, this little boy was mesmerized, and he ended up watching their entire encounter. He didn't tell anyone. He didn't speak to his mother. He didn't tell his brother, and he certainly didn't talk to his father. He became obsessed with his mother's affair. And he monitored when they got together and where they got together. And he was voyeuristic in terms of watching them and keeping track of their relationship. And although it was disgusting to him, in some way it was also arousing. And he had a lot of shame. But most importantly, he felt badly for his father, who had been made a fool of. He referred to his father as the chump. And he made a deal with himself at that point that he would never be the chump. He would never be the guy that got cheated on. And he identified with his mother, who was the the cheater, and uh, went on to marry and have compulsive affairs in his marriage. As I mentioned, he reported he had seven or 800 extramarital contacts. And he said that he did it because he needed to remind himself that he's not a chump. So I'm going to leave that there, and I want you to think about the impact of not only knowing that your mother was having an affair, but watching her engage sexually in an affair with your father's best friend. The next sexual story I'd like to share with you is about a woman who came to see me in her mid-30s, and she recalled an incident from when she was 11 years old. She described herself as being chunky, 
uh, a little on the heavy side, and said that she was not very popular with girls or boys. She said that her body had started to change, but she wasn't aware that there were visible changes to her body and unaware that she had developing breast buds that were visible through her clothes. She was in class one day, sort of minding her own business, and one of the most popular girls handed her a note. And back in the day, when you get a note from a popular girl, that's a pretty cool thing. So she was super excited and thought maybe she was being invited to a party or a sleepover. And when she opened up the note, she read with anticipation. Her face fell flat, and the note read, Do us all a favor and buy a fucking bra. Signed, The Class. She said she just wanted to be invisible and sink through the floor at that moment. She was really mortified, went home, didn't tell her mom because she was too embarrassed, got her piggy bank and rode her two-wheeler to Kmart, where she spent all her money on a training bra. But the damage was done. She ended up really hating her breasts. She was quite large-breasted and would bind her breasts and wear baggy clothes so that it would be harder to, to see her chest. And when she started dating, she didn't want men to touch her breasts or focus on her breasts. And it was a real hindrance for her in terms of connecting sexually because she had this sort of off-limits zone. She did end up getting married, but told her husbands not to touch her breasts under any circumstance, and it was causing conflict in their marriage. And so she came to me for some guidance around that. And after sharing that story, she came to appreciate the legacy of that note and how she developed self-loathing and became body dysmorphic uh, regarding her breasts and how that had really impacted her all these years later. She decided to get a breast reduction, and not only did she tolerate sexual stimulation on her breasts and nipples, but came to really enjoy, authentically enjoy breast play in her marriage, and it was life-changing for her to process the trauma of that note back from age 11. This next story I want to share with you is, is quite disturbing. I treated a man in his mid to late 40s who came to see me because he was experiencing erectile dysfunction. And in taking a sexual history from him, he explained that his parents, but in particular his mother, felt that masturbation was a sin and that he would, he would go to hell if he engaged in any sort of self-pleasuring behavior. But in spite of that warning, he was a red-blooded American boy and had a lot of sexual energy in his body, and he did masturbate. One day, his mother entered his room while he was touching himself, and she was so mortified that she put him into a bathtub full of bleach to cleanse him of his sinful thoughts. You can imagine going forward, he had even more conflict and shame about engaging in masturbatory behavior but didn't feel like he could refrain. So in preparation for hell, he would practice putting his hand into a hot oven and burning himself. He thought if he could learn to tolerate the heat, then he would be okay when he got to hell. I'm going to share one last sexual story with you now. This is a story that a man in his late 20s shared with me during a sexual history. He said that when he was 
12 or 13, he was at a sleepover with a group of his best buddies, and he was wearing boxer shorts. They were all sitting around playing video games, and his penis, his flaccid penis, meaning his non-erect penis, and one of his testicles sort of spilled out the side of his boxer shorts to where it was visible. And one of his buddies made a comment on how small his penis was and nicknamed him Nugget. And so all the other guys, of course, got on the bandwagon. And his nickname throughout middle school and high school was Nugget. As you can imagine, he became very self-conscious about the size of his penis, which is a, a common anxiety in men. And he went on to engage in desperate measures to try to lengthen his penis and appear more well-endowed than he was to the point where he physically hurt himself and uh, needed to be hospitalized. And some of the contraptions and techniques that he offered caused uh, scar tissue and he lost sensation and ended up needing to have a permanent penile implant by age 27. So just think about that. One kid at one moment called him Nugget, and it set him down a path of obsession and preoccupation about his penis size. Now, did that particular person probably have some vulnerability or, or predisposition toward anxiety and OCD? Probably. But even someone who didn't have OCD and didn't have anxiety might really, really get stuck on that nickname, Nugget. And so I want you to think back to your past about moments, comments, situations where someone said something or you became aware of some embarrassing aspect of your body or behavior that you engaged in, and it really left a mark. It really shaped you share. Tell me, what are the stories? What are the nicknames? What are the memories? Email me your stories and I'll try to give you some perspective on the air. Today, I am thrilled and excited to introduce a colleague and friend, Dr. Erwin Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is the director of the San Diego Sexual Medicine Center and recipient of the World Association for Sexual Health and recognition of lifetime contributions to the field of sexual health. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sexual Medicine and an overall pioneer in the field of sexual medicine offering fellowship training. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Goldstein. Kimberly, you rock. Thank you for doing this. Getting messaging out there in sexual medicine is so important. So you, you rock. Thank you. Thank you. It's been about 10 or 12 years since I first met you at my initial ISWISH meeting, Yay. which is uh, <laughs> uh, it's called the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And I was so taken with your passion around sexual medicine. And I've been a disciple ever since. When I met you, I was living in the Midwest. Now I'm here in California. You're in San Diego. I'm in Los Angeles. And I'm actually able to refer patients to you And it's such a wonderful feeling to know that you're only a couple of hours away and can provide such good care for my patients. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to working with you a lot on this project. Great. So just so my listeners understand, you are going to be a frequent guest on this podcast. You are going to be my resident medical expert 
And today we're just going to chat a little bit about what's happening in the field of sexual medicine, what are new innovations, what sort of research is being done, and give a little overview of the many, many, many interventions that are available that most people don't realize are out there. Uh, And then when you come back, we'll be talking about some specific issues and problems that men and women face. Sounds like a plan. And and thank you for this privilege of being your resident medical expert. (laughs) It's my pleasure. My pleasure. It's an honor to have you you working with me. So why don't you start by just giving a range of the problems that people come to see you for help? Well, uh, one of the beautiful parts of working with you on this project would be embracing basically both men and women with sexual health problems. Uh, Too often, they're sequestered in either one gender or the other. And the reality, of course, is that sexuality is a sharing intimate moment that is between two people. So in heterosexual sexual activity, it's a male or female, male and female event. And the idea is that couples can have sexual problems that both share. And they both need to be addressed if success will be uh, achieved. So I think the recognition that if a man has a problem, it's often that a woman has uh, his partner will have a similar problem in a different way, for example. For example or at so least be, be affected by the problem in a way yeah. that affects her satisfaction or some phase of sexual response. Yeah, and I think the, the, the classic uh, involvement is a man in his 50s and 60s will be in generally with a woman in menopause. And uh, menopause offers uh, a chronic, unrelenting, gonadal uh, dysfunction state for the rest of that woman's life. And uh, frankly, it's crazy that only 7% of women are getting treatment for menopause. So uh, there's it a lot shocking. of issues with these women. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy Even now, thing. 2019, that's, that's a, a shocking number given the benefits. Yeah, the benefits it, are amazing. Yeah. And, only, and 93% of women sort of write this off and, and go into some retirement mode in sexuality, which is, which is yes, really yes. unfair to both people. Yes, menopause does not have to be the end of your sexual life. It does not. It should be the beginning of of one with of a new phase. Yeah. Uh, be the beginning of a new phase of the golden era. There you go. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, so yeah, we're we're all about the relational component of sex and how people don't have sexual lives in isolation. That's one of the things I talk with my patients about all the time. Is that well, not only tribute, do you attribute back to you, Kimberly? I mean, often sex therapists uh, get cornered into exclusively psychological assessment, and it's just not the real world. The real world is biopsychosocial. So, sex therapists that engage the, the the psychology along with the medical are the ones that do the best because clearly it's a combination issue. Absolutely, and that's why I've appreciated your influence so much because you make the medical piece so clear and understandable and and it's been invaluable at least to me in terms of of the services that I provide. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what's happening in the field of sexual medicine? You're actually a pioneer. You were one of the first, if not the first, to offer an actual sexual medicine fellowship, isn't that right? Well, we we've trained gosh no, uh, now uh, dozens and dozens of fellows uh, that are around the the US and it's been remarkable 
And it's necessary because it's just not taught in medical schools this area. It is not. Yeah, you're all just don't learn gynecologists, don't learn primary care. It's so true. I teach at UCLA in the medical school. I'm on the assistant professor of psychiatry, and I teach young docs how to talk to patients about sex. And they are terrified. And they really, really appreciate the opportunity to learn how to take a sexual history and to learn about the phases of sexual response. And after working with me, they feel so much more comfortable. They feel like they have the vocabulary and the confidence to to discuss sexual issues with patients, which is such a crucial component of what doctors should be doing. I'm a clinical professor at UCSD, and I give a lecture, a two-hour lecture on women's sexual health to the second-year students. And I, I think it's ostensibly the first lecture for women's sexual health in any of the medical schools in the U.S., uh, uh, and it's amazing what they don't know and hopefully now will know going forward. But, exactly. but the, the point is, I think that uh, for, for people listening, and there are different phases of sexuality. You will have reviewed this, the a desire phase, an arousal phase. For men, that would be an erection phase, sort of a, an orgasm phase leading up to a lot of sexual tension and the release, and then a recovery phase, resolution phase. And right. there are advances in every one of these phases for both men and women. I think my, my most interesting sort of recent contribution to sexual medicine is the role of the spine. It's in particular the region between where the sacral cord enters in the sacral bone all the way up through the lumbar spinal cord until the spinal cord starts at thoracic level T12. That lower region is called the cauda equina. And we have now operated on 50 men and women with cauda equina lesions and recovered their sexual function in three quarters of them. And that is totally brand new. And that is really sort of exciting and innovative and and interesting. And we hope to are you what are you fixing? What, What is the damage? Well, I mean, if you look around the aging population, the chances of having a lumbar disc disease, the chances of having an impingement from a disc, the chance of having an annular tear uh, through a disc are so high. And what it is, is in that region of the spine called the cauda equina, the nerves from the genitals, exclusively the vagina, the penis, or the clitoris, pass intact. They are still representing the clitoris and vagina and and scrotum and perineum at the cauda equina. So, so lesions in that area can actually affect, unbeknownst to most individuals, the function of the genitals. And there's a new era in spine surgery called minimally invasive spine surgery, MISS, where outpatient two-hour surgeries can really safely and effectively recover the disc problem, and that re- rechanges the sexual function, and, and that's been extremely exciting. The, the biggest advance is these men and women who have this horrible condition where their, their genitals are constantly arousing. We have mm-hmm. this term persistent genital arousal disorder, and right. Um, right. Uh, we, we have rescued the lives of many women. It's a, it's a very high uh, suicide rate. But the Absolutely. opposite of PAD is when you can't feel anything. We have men mm-hmm. and women who say, I, I just don't feel my penis. It's, it's like I'm wearing 10 condoms. Uh, exactly. Or women will say, I don't know what's inside my vagina. I, I just don't feel it. They have no yep. libido. They can't have orgasm. And we're now finding a large percentage of them have caught equina pathology as the basis. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, I, I'm speechless. I have people presenting all the time with a lack of sensation. They'll say it's like I'm numb or 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 the the nerves are dead. 
Well, you know, it's so weird that if you said the nerves are dead in my finger, the healthcare provider would immediately say, that sounds neurologic. <laughs> but you, exactly. you sort of incriminate a <laughs> genital and it's in your head. <laughs> of course. So insulting. Yeah, so incredible. Yeah. If you went to the hospital and said, I can't feel my finger, they would admit you. <laughs> but if you can't feel your penis, then, uh, or, or especially because women are, have been deemed histrionic and, and emotional, and which is one of the things I'm hoping to talk with you about in another episode, the psychological impact of pelvic pain and how women have been treated historically by the medical profession. But that's a, another well, topic for another day. Well, before you leave pain, let me tell you, we just had five consecutive men and women with who's seeing you know more than 20 30 healthcare providers for pain where the actual generator of the pain was the cod equina yes yes but by the time they get to you they've been gaslighted into thinking that they're crazy um sadly that is very common yes but we will change this (laughs) yes we will you and i will do that i have women come to me they've been to four seven eleven different gynecologists urologists and have yet to be diagnosed it's a big learning curve. I, I mean, the the combination of men and women issues are very important. We'll see men who complain of erectile dysfunction, failed all of their conservative therapies, uh, mm-hmm. are, are interested in the prosthetic surgery, and mm-hmm. then w- hopefully they're with their partner in the room, and I stare at the partner and I say, your your partner will now have rigid four of the four high high uh, sustained as she looks at her face is in panic and she said well i haven't had that kind of sex in a long time can you help me and mm-hmm. then we'll do this fabulous procedure called vulvoscopy which i would hope that every woman always gets when they get an examination of vulvoscopy because it empowers them to actually see what's wrong with them such an odd thing that you have a medical problem and you can't see it it, it just it's from a man, it's just inconceivable that that could happen. But for a woman, when it involves your genitals, uh, uh, you can't see it. So you have no idea what the problem is. Valvoscopy evens the score. So we do valvoscopy on everybody. They get to see everything. Not every woman wants to look, but hopefully most <laughs> will. But, but you, when, when you see what happens to your genitals in menopause as a woman, you will not allow that to happen. You will say, OMG, that is not me. I cannot believe this has happened to me. Doc, you fix me. Mm-hmm. And, and that whole concept is now being done in, in a different way than in the past. In the past, you would see your doctor, your doctor would say, Mary, here are some hormones. I'll see you in a year. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no endocrinologist who would ever do that. There's no diabetic patient who would ever say, here's your insulin, I'll see you in a year. We Correct. treat menopause like an endocrine disorder, which is what it is. And mm-hmm. we monitor regularly with blood tests with ideal goals that are safe, and we monitor it with vulvoscopy to actually document the changes in the tissue health. So as we're doing the you know, the penile implant and the, 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 the sort of rejuvenation, if, you, if I'm allowed mm-hmm. to use that word, for a man's sexual health, we do the similar thing for the woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you could have a bionic penis, but if your wife's not receptive or able to accommodate you, it isn't going to make a difference. Yeah, no, I'll hear you loud and clear. It, it's, it's been, the, it's been a, a huge issue for aging men and women that there's a discrepancy between who gets the, the sexual rehabilitation and who does not. Right. We have to change that. Absolutely. Same thing with Viagra and other PDE5s. Men buy the pill, but if their wife hates them, it isn't going to get them laid. 
Yeah, no, I, I hear you loud and clear. And, and uh, for women who have lack of interest, there is now for three years uh, an FDA-approved medication to help them with interest. We, we prescribe this a lot. It's The name of the drug is Addy, A-D-D-Y-I. Fabulous right, Flabanserin. Yeah, flibanserin has changed the lives of many women. And uh, do you find, Erwin, that that women are satisfied with the results? Because I've my patients who've been on it have had mixed results. Well, I mean, it's a sixty percent successful medication. You try it for a few months. If it works, then you you stay on it because it's very helpful. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, you you move on to other strategies. And speaking of other strategies, in June at the FDA, assuming they're the government, it doesn't shut down forever. The FDA works. <laughs> The FDA has uh, a PADUFA date for June for the new drug. It's V-Y-L-E-E-S-I, Vilesi. And okay. it's, it's a bremelanotide uh, drug, and it, it amazingly increases dopamine. And different than Addy, you'll use this medication uh, only when you need it. So, uh, oh, it's, the, a, yeah, oh, so it's interesting. You're more in control when you wish to use it. You, you do it. It's an injection into the subcutaneous layer of your abdomen. It's a machine that mm-hmm. does it, so there's nothing for you to do. Wow. There's uh, a duration of around 10 to 12 hours of a very high libido because the dopamine is very much increased. And uh, going to be a huge, huge new player adding an additional choice to, to women with lower interest. Is this for postmenopausal women only? No, this will be again premenopausal as uh, was at Premenopausal. Uh, and, okay. Uh, as time goes on, they will expand the indications, I presume. That is going to be life changing for millions of women. It will be, and I look forward to this summer when, when it comes out. And we'll be talking about it on Sex Savvy. <laughs> we sure will be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for. Uh, chiming in today and introducing yourself to my audience. And you can see or you can hear what an expert Dr. Goldstein is just in the 10 or 15 minutes that we've been chatting. He will be joining me on a regular basis to share innovations in sexual medicine. And if you have a question about your sexual health, it relates to something organic or physical, email me and I will forward it straight to Dr. Goldstein, who will hopefully have an answer for you. So Dr. Goldstein, I will be in touch with you soon and we will continue where we left off. So Kimberly, I started the podcast by saying you rock. It's really important that people understand how well you rock because you have embraced the biopsychosocial. That is the future and that is the reality of sexual medicine. So please go see Kimberly. She will take care of you at both sides of the of the of the disorder and it really needs to be done that way. So thank you very very much for this uh, opportunity. It is truly my honor and I look forward to connecting with you soon. Thank you so much Dr. Goldstein. So there you have it, your first introduction to my resident medical expert, Dr. Erwin Goldstein, the first of many conversations we'll be having about innovations in sexual medicine. I would like to thank you for tuning in to Sex Savvy. I know that there are a lot of podcasts out there and a lot of podcasts about sex and relationships, and I'm so happy that you spent this hour with me. Tune in next week so you can learn how to become sex savvy. Sex Savvy.